Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. started last month, uh, Holiness from the Inside Out. And last month, we discussed holiness, what it meant, and uh, we went over talking about hair. Um, so it is available. You all can listen to that if you'd like for those that weren't able to be here. I do want to go back, though, and just restate um, my paragraph that I said at the very beginning of our last lesson, and that is this. This series is meant to be informative, not judgmental. The lessons are not targeted at anyone or intended to make anyone feel inferior or uncomfortable. Each lady here is on a journey to get closer to God and be more like him, and we're not all in the same place. Some are further than others, and some have been in church or serving God a whole lot longer. So I'm just going to share and teach from the Word of God. We've always stated that you don't have to look a certain way or dress any certain way to attend this church. We welcome all people with open arms, from the sinner to the saint. We have always told newcomers, come as you are, allow God to deal with your heart, and let them change as they felt led by the Spirit. So all I ask is that you listen to what God would speak to us through his word with an open heart and mind. So let me just remind you what holiness means. It means to be separate, distinct, in a class by oneself, to be different in a special way. That's what holiness means. So let me just get a little feedback from you. Don't be shy or modest or afraid to talk. But what comes to mind when you hear the word modest or modesty? Any certain words or images or things come to mind? Anyone? Just throw it out there. All right. Anybody else? Covered. Is that what you said? Same thing. Covered. Okay. Anyone else? Well, the word modest or modesty has several definitions. Modesty just being in its simplest form, the state or quality of being modest. But that still doesn't tell us quite what modest means. So it means reserve or propriety in speech, dress, or behavior. Lack of pretentiousness, simplicity. Designed, this is in clothing and fashion, designed to prevent inadvertent exposure of part of the body. Number five, not extreme or excessive. So those are some of the definitions of what modest or modesty is. Now we know that the Bible tells us that we're to glorify God in our bodies because we're the temple of the Holy Ghost, correct? So how we dress on the outside is going to reveal what we believe on the inside. Now I'll state up front that obviously people that don't know God, which refer to many times as sinners, people that don't know God, that aren't serving God, or even new converts, or new in the faith, immature, they're not going to have the knowledge or teaching of what's appropriate. That only comes from the study of God's word, giving ear to preaching and teaching from a man of God. So as unsaved and unconverted people come into our church dressed immodestly, they should be warmly welcomed. There's nothing worse than someone that dresses holy, but then has a horrible, critical, judgmental spirit. So we want anybody that comes in, we want them to feel welcome. We want them to feel comfortable in our church. I want to have a church full of sinners dressed immodestly. I want to have a bunch of people here 
The difference is that we as God's people who have the Holy Ghost and have been serving God for a while, then we're accountable for more. We're responsible for more because we know more. As we receive the revelations that are expressed in Scripture, then we're held accountable for what we know. This is laid out in Scripture in James 4.17, and some of these Scriptures are going to be on the screen for you this evening. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. The New American Standard Bible says the same exact verse this way. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So once we become aware of more teachings and things that are in the scriptures, and we know that's good to do, but we still don't do it, then that's where we sin. Because we've become aware of it. We've become knowledgeable of it. So the Bible even tells us that when we come to know Christ, old things are passed away and all things become new. Not just on the inside, but we even become new on the outside. So we can accept his truth or we can reject him. The choice is left up to us. God made us with a choice, with a will, and it's our choice how we choose to obey or not obey. Sometimes God's ways are not always popular. True? Sometimes we don't always understand God's ways. True? But his ways are necessary. His ways are higher than our ways, the Bible says. The Bible even tells us it's his righteousness that we put on, not our righteousness. Because our righteousness is as filthy rags. God has his own standard of what is holy and righteous, and not what mankind views as holy. Because what we see as righteous, that's just filthy rags. Our righteousness is nothing to God, but his ways, his standard of holiness, his righteousness, that's what we want to put on because that's what will represent Christ. So to learn of God's idea of modesty, we're going to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and view Adam and Eve. When God created male and female and placed them in the garden, the Bible states in Genesis 2.25 that they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Because there was no sin in the world at this time, everything was innocent. But after the temptation of the serpent, after Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they became aware of their nakedness. Genesis 3 and 7, they suddenly possessed the knowledge. The Bible says their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So they ate of the tree, and I think it's very interesting that God denotes this tree as a tree that would give them knowledge of good and evil. Before that, they didn't know. They were innocent. They had no idea. But once they ate and gained that knowledge, then they both knew that they were naked. It made them ashamed. So then they got fig leaves and began to sew them together, and the Bible says they made themselves aprons. So they were covering up their private parts. Apron covers up a private part. So then we go on to verse 8, and it says that God came down in the cool of the day, and that Adam and Eve hid themselves from God because they were ashamed of their sin and of their nakedness. So then we go on to verse 9. And the Lord called to Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Because Adam was always there waiting, but they had gone and hid themselves. Of course, you cannot hide anything from God. He knew, but he was asking Adam, Where are you? Why aren't you in your normal place? Where aren't you where I normally find you? So then we go on to the next verse. And Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So even though he'd already made an apron, he still knew, I'm naked, and so he still hid himself from God. Verse 11, 
And he said, God said, Who told you thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? So when we go on down through this chapter, and we find out that they tell God, yes, you know, of course, Adam says the woman, and the woman says it was the serpent. So then God starts going through where he says, serpent, I'm going to curse you to crawl on your belly, and, you know, Adam, you're going to have sorrow, or Eve, you're going to have sorrow and childbearing, and Adam, you're going to have to work the ground by the sweat of your brow and all that, okay? So all this comes about. The Lord's putting a curse on the serpent, and he's telling Adam and Eve what the consequences of their sin are going to be. It wasn't so much a punishment as it was consequences of their own choice and decision. Now notice verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. So in other words, Adam and Eve made their own coverings. And after all the story came about, God said, your covering's not sufficient. I'm going to make you a covering. So then God sacrificed an animal, first blood sacrifice in the Bible, and he took the skins of those animals and he clothed them. He made them a covering. Um, scripture goes on to talk about how it was like a robe. It was a garment, a robe to cover. The word coat meaning a coat, a garment, a robe to cover. So it was the very first time in Scripture where we see God setting forth a precept of modesty for mankind. Basically, the precept being man made his own covering and it wasn't sufficient. So God said, here's the covering that I'm giving you. It is sufficient. And I think it's neat to see, just as a little side note, this really doesn't have anything to do with the holiness, but I think it's really neat right here that God had a blood sacrifice to provide them with a covering for their nakedness, kind of foreshadowing there's going to come a day when his blood sacrifice is going to provide a covering for our sin, which was awesome. So, obviously the measly attempt that Adam and Eve made to cover their nakedness was not sufficient in the Lord's eyes. So as a result of sin entering the world because of their transgression, lust was now present in the world. Sin was now present in the world, and all anything you can connect to sin was now rampant in the world. So humanity could no longer walk around unclothed because the destruction of innocence necessitated the covering of the nakedness. It's just kind of like, think about it like this. If you're kind of get your mind wrapped around it, it's like a young toddler, you know. They jump out of the bath, and they go streaking through the house butt naked, and they're all just, ah! And everybody's just laughing at that's so cute, ha, 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 get a video, get a picture, you know. And you just laugh, and you pick them up and take them to the room, and come on, let's get your clothes on, you know, it's no big deal. Or you see a baby, you know, and they're just in a onesie or a little diaper or in a bath, you know, it's no big deal. They're just young and innocent. They don't know anything. We don't think anything of it because they're young. They're innocent. No awareness. It's not even sexual in nature. It's just their little baby, you know, it's no big deal. But then we would turn the page and say, but if a grown person did that, jumped out the tower and went running through the house, you know, okay, that's indecent. You've uncovered yourself. It's very unnatural. And even in today's society, as awful as today's society and ungodly as today's society is, there are still laws against what's called exhibitionism, where people expose their private parts in public. In some cases... The intent is to cause sexual arousal through flashing people. And do you know that could even be prosecuted as a misdemeanor or even a felony in our society? The difference between the toddler and the adult is that the toddler has no awareness that there's anything wrong with their nakedness because they're innocent. But an adult has the knowledge that they have uncovered themselves, that their nakedness is showing. So it could be said that modesty is a sign of maturity. Even in the church, 
newcomers come in, they're immature. They're like a babe. You know, they're feeding on the milk. And as they begin to grow, just like a, a natural baby, a spiritual babe in Christ will begin to, as they talk, you know, get the meat of the word. You know, they start to be able to have an appetite for the harder things. It's the same way in the church. People come in, they're not aware so much of their immodest dress or whatnot or that they should be more modestly clothed. Well, but as they begin to mature in Christ, and those revelations begin to come, they become aware, so to speak, of their nakedness, aware of the things that need to be covered. So if that can kind of give you a way to look at it, immature Christians and a lot of converts, not aware. The Bible even says, how should they hear without a preacher? How are people going to know where they need to line up if they've not read the Word? Because that's a mirror. That's what shows us our instructions of how to live. But as we're taught the Word, we understand the need to be modest. Even pastor last night, I told him, I said, oh, you just set up our lesson tonight so good with your teaching and preaching last night. In the Old Testament, he was talking, do you remember him talking about how there were ceremonial laws and there was moral law? Ceremonial laws were just, you know, your basic, you know, every day how to live, your unclean animals, this, you know, rock to bake this, and, you know, all the different little ceremonial laws. But when Christ came, just like when they had to sacrifice this animal for this sin and this animal for this sin and a bigger animal for a bigger sin, when Christ went to the cross, he fulfilled all that because he was the perfect sacrifice. No more sacrifices were needed anymore. So a lot of the ceremonial laws were done away with. They were no longer needed because the Lord fulfilled those. But moral laws and precepts, which the Lord established, were going to be forever. So we go to the next book in the Bible, the book of Exodus. And we see the Lord begins to give instructions. This is where Moses is on the, on the scene and the Ten Commandments are being given by the Lord. So we look in chapter 20. And we see that after Moses has told all the children about what all the Ten Commandments are going to be, and they're going to make an altar, and they're going to sacrifice to God, this is the Lord giving instruction unto um, how the altar should be built. And this is what he says. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. In other words, what the Lord was saying was this. When you build my altar... I do not want any steps going up to my altar because I don't want anyone walking up the steps and someone below being able to view the nakedness of that person that's up above them. Okay? So that was what God was stating. I don't want their nakedness to be discovered on my altar. This is something holy. This is something sacred. Even the Bible says, no flesh shall glory in his presence. He wanted that to be a sacred place, not a place where there would be any distractions or, you know, any type of things that would distract the people from their purpose. And as a side note, I'm sure I'll touch on it again, but same way when we come into the house of the Lord, we don't want our dress to be a distraction to people coming into the house of the Lord to worship. So we'll touch on that some more later. So don't put steps in the altar, because I don't want anyone walking up the steps and someone down here seeing too much skin. So in Isaiah, we see in the book of Isaiah that God shows us what shame on a woman looks like. In Isaiah, God was passing judgment on Babylon and Chaldea. And the royal princesses that was in these cities were being cast off their thrones. And they were being turned into slaves. And it goes on to tell us how their bodies were uncovered and exposed in the sight of men. Now listen to these scriptures in Isaiah, chapter 47, verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground, there is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Verse 2. Take the millstones and grind meal. Uncover thy locks. Make bare the leg. Uncover the thigh. Pass over the rivers. Verse 3. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Yea, thy shame shall be seen. 
I will take vengeance, and I will not meet thee as a man. Verse 4. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Now notice in this scripture, he says, Thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Okay, well, what did he mean? Well, he tells us right before that when he says, Uncover thy thigh. He considered the uncovering of the thigh to be a form of nakedness. Nakedness was also synonymous with slavery because back in those days, royalty wore many garments. That's how they showed there was royalty. The more garments they had on, the richer you knew they were. But slaves many times just had a loincloth or a simple tunic. They didn't have much. So nakedness and slavery were symbolic. So when these royal princesses were cast off their throne and they were punished, they were treated, they basically became slaves, and they were made to be naked. How were they naked? Because they were, their thighs were exposed. Now us, in this day and age, we've been set free from slavery, from the bondage of sin. Have we not? And we are children of the king, the most high king. So therefore, no longer should we be naked, but we should be covered with many garments, the garments of holiness, the garments of praise, also that we don't reveal our flesh to the world around us. We cover up our carnal flesh and let the Spirit of God inside of us have the attention. We want our spiritual man to attract others, not our bodies, right? So 1 Corinthians one twenty nine. I already made mention of this, but it bears repeating, no flesh shall glory in his presence. We don't want our carnal man, our carnal flesh to get in the way. We want it to be all about him. All about focus and attention and everything being on him. And if we are dressed in such a way that's immodest or seductive, we're going to be very distracting, especially for the brothers in the church and the men that are around us in our life because they are very visual by nature. And that can become a distraction. And We don't want to be a stumbling block in someone's way. Psalms 119.89 states this, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. He goes on in the same chapter, verse 142, thy, thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Basically just making the statement that his word is for all generations. It lasts forever. His righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. It's not temporal. It's not just for Bible days. It's not just for a certain generation. It's forever. It's for all time. His word is settled. So now we fast forward out of the Old Testament, and we come into the New Testament, the New Testament church. I want to read to you a short um, little, not really a paragraph, a couple sentences that was written in a book called In the Language of Clothing by Alison Lurie. This was referenced by Ruth Reader. In ancient Egypt, Crete, and Greece, the naked body was not considered immodest because slaves and athletes habitually went without clothing while people of high rank wore garments that were cut and draped so as to show a good deal when in motion. So we find in the New Testament church, you have the new church, people freshly filled with the Holy Ghost, the apostles and disciples are going out, beginning to teach and preach, and they're coming into contact with some societies where, again, slaves, they're not dressed appropriately. Some of the athletes, you know, the gladiators and all them that were out in the arenas at that time, not dressed appropriately. So the Apostle Paul begins to address the issue in 1 Timothy 2. Now, he's not only addressing the issue of women, but he's addressing the issue of holiness in men as well. We're going to start with uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, let's pause right there for just one second, because 
Brother Tim Gill, Pastor Tim Gill, he pastors here in Medora, Indiana, a couple hours up, and he taught and preached at the general conference, and he began to speak on holiness. And one of the statements he made was really, really awesome. And he said that men are to be holy in their action, and women are to be holy in their appearance. Now, I'm not saying that men aren't holy and modest in their appearance, because they should be. But very rarely in the church do you find a man, a man that struggles with their clothing. It's typically a woman that struggles with the clothing, true? But it's typically a man that will struggle with things like, you look here. And he said, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifted up holy hands. He said, I look at this and I see man, what is their appetite towards? What is their desire towards? Where are they looking at? You know, are they looking around them? Are they looking to have sexual lust fulfilled? Things like that. No, we have their appetite to be towards God because that is the standard of holiness for a man, that their eyes are on God without wrath. He said another area of holiness for men is their anger, their temper. They need to work on that, that men need to have a very tight rein on their um, temper and on their anger and doubting. And he said this is another area that a man's behavior is very important because he says we don't need men that are different. Men that are just going to sit back and, you know, well, it doesn't matter. I don't care. I don't have to pray. I don't have to go to church. I can just sit at home and send a wife and kids. He said you've got to be passionate about God. You've got to be a leader in your home. You've got to take a stand for Christ and, and be a leader. So he goes on to say these are ways that, he, that the Apostle Paul in that day is addressing men. And then he goes on, look at verse 9. In like manner also. In other words, just like I've addressed these issues with the men and said this is where they need to work, ladies, this is where you need to work. You need to adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Verse 10. But which becometh women professing godliness with good works. So oh, this is another thing where it shows he's addressing women of the church because women professing godliness this is what you need to do. Women that profess to know Christ, women that profess to have the Holy Ghost and have God in their life, this is where you need to work. The word adorn that's in verse 9, it means literally to beautify. To beautify. Obviously as women, an innate desire of women is to feel beautiful. To feel that someone is attracted to you. Yes, we know that it's about the heart and all that, but we still, you know... Even tonight, honey, do I look okay? You know, really. I just threw myself together. But we want to feel beautiful. And here the Lord is saying, beautify yourself through modest apparel. Beautify yourself through shamefacedness. He begins to talk about these things. God created us as women to feel that way. To want to feel beautiful. And we can make ourselves beautiful through modest clothing. So in this day age of the Bible, and even yet now, dressing properly was indicative of good behavior. It was a woman that professed godliness would be modest. Edith Head, who was an American costume designer, said this, wear your clothes tight enough to show you're a woman, but loose enough to show you're a lady. And I think that is an awesome statement. I love that. You don't want them so baggy and just, you're just homely, but you don't want them so tight that you know every curve and crevice that you got. But you just want it tight enough to show you're a woman, but loose enough to show that you're a lady. Now, we live in a culture in an era today where everything is driven by sex and sensuality. We know that. Nudity or semi-nudity, it's commonplace. And not just on the beach anymore. You can go to the mall. You can take a walk in the park. You can go in, just drive down the road and see someone walking down the sidewalk. And you see 
short shorts, halter tops, tube tops, muscle shirts, guys running around without shirts, girls in backless shirts, people running around with no bras on. I mean, you know, it's just, you just never know what you're going to see. The desire for a modesty, let it be known, though, it's driven by a spirit, okay? Not necessarily that people will know it is, but it is, and it's not the spirit of God. Remember in Luke chapter 8, when it talks about the man of the Gadarenes? He was the man that was possessed, and he had one that was legion, and they, you know, they said, don't cast us, and they said, well, can we go into the pigs? Remember the story? Okay. He was possessed of devils, and one of the ways he was affected, the Bible says, was that he wear no clothes. He was naked. He was possessed of devils, and he was naked. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that everyone who dresses immodestly is possessed, okay? Don't go away saying that's what I said, because it's not. What I am saying, though, is immodesty is a desire that is influenced by the enemy of our soul, the enemy of the church, the one that wants to see every person on the face of this earth go to hell and not be saved and not serve God. That is an influence and a desire that he tries to push on people is to be immodest. It has been said that the farther a civilized society declines, the more clothes it takes off. If that's true, we are getting further and further from civilization. And as a society now, we've been desensitized, and really people are no longer shocked by what we see. You know, people see things and it's like, well, that don't surprise me. You know, how many times, well, that don't surprise me. Anymore, things are not condemned or frowned upon. It's our new normal. It's sad, but it's true. It's our new normal. Now, years ago, the fashions of today would have been seen as indecent, unacceptable, even scandalous. You don't hear the word scandalous much anymore, unless it's related to politics. But each generation, <laughs> that's true, but each generation has shifted further and further away from godly values and morals. And now we truly live in an anything-goes society. And these changes have come just over the past 100 to 200 years. What used to be unacceptable is now accepted. So many changes over the past couple of centuries. You can just begin to look at all the issues. Abortion, prayer in school, homosexuality, same-sex marriages. Businesses used to be closed on Sunday so people could go to church. Divorce rates were so much lower. Cursing, nudity, and violence on TV and movies. Before the movie Gone with the Wind, no curse words were ever even uttered on the movie screen. That one curse word and put in one movie changed the course of movies forever. We can view magazine covers, TV commercials, billboards, and etc., and we can see the progression and decline of modesty. I want to show you a few things here that I printed off. And these are some old fashions and styles as recently as years ago, about 100 years ago, which really isn't that far, a couple generations removed. But this was what, mainly what the fashions looked like about 100 years ago. Skirts were long, necklines were high, they looked very much a beautiful lady with beautiful outfits, but they were not immodest. Here is, just as recently, a Mademoiselle cover and this is as recent as 1952. Now, granted, we know just from our teaching last time that it was during the 20s that the bobbed hair became popular, and after that, women mostly wore chopped hair. But look at the outfit even in the 1950s. Full skirt below the knee, sleeves below the elbow, high neck, 
1952. Now, this is the Seventeen magazine. Now, we all know the Seventeen magazine is put out for teenagers, is it not? So these fashions are to appeal to teenagers. This one is from 1953. Again, of course, we see the shorter hair. But again, look at the outfit that's on the cover in 1953. Long skirts, longer sleeves. Now this is a copy of something that was called the Women's Magazine out of St. Louis. This is from 1905. Very modest. Mm -hmm. I'll put up. No modesty question there whatsoever. This one is from 1934. This is the Saturday Evening Post. are still alive that were kids during that time. Now, we know to expect normally, people go to the beach and they wear bathing suits, do they not? Anymore, almost nothing at all. But if we look here, this is what, in 1898, just before the turn of the 19th century, this is what women's bathing suits look like. Dresses with short sleeves and leggings for little bloomers underneath. And I even found a photograph from 1910 of some ladies at the beach. The guys aren't dressed very modestly, but the women, look at how they're dressed in 1910. Very, very modest. Very modest. Okay, so now we've seen some of those. hundred years later, here we go. Here's some of our modern-day magazine covers. I want to make mention, too, this one here, let me go back. I thought it was really interesting that on the Seventeen magazine, this was in the middle of the summer, it was July, and this was the cover. That says a lot to me, but that was the cover in the middle of July. So we see, you know, very, very immodest fitness. Here's another one. These are the type of covers that we see. All you gotta do is walk through Walmart and go to the checkout line. That's what you see. Women, you know, provocative. I mean, that's meant, that's meant to be provocative. You know, lifting up the shirt, the peekaboo, now you see it, now you don't. You know, Mariah Carey on the cover, she got some kids, so, you know, whatever her 20 day detox juice only diet or whatever. So. <laughs> So this is just showing you that now every cover of every magazine, and not even just the covers, but I mean, even advertising things on the back, you know, advertising cars or, you know, um, seeing some, just whatever, advertising shampoos, or I mean, you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about, the commercials and everything that, you know, just show the, immodest, and that's, that's the day and age we live in. This is our cover compared to this is what it was 100 years ago. We see the decline in modesty that's gone along. Oh, yes, I saw that. Right. It was, there was a cover just recently, it was very controversial, um, just a couple 
uh, maybe about a month ago, it, on the cover, it was a mother standing with her son, standing on a step stool, he's probably three, and breastfeeding on the, you know, on the cover of the magazine. So it was very controversial. But we can see then, older society was much more modest and holy in their attire than we are today. When God referred to his people in the Bible as set apart or peculiar, it was due to them receiving the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues. That's what set apart God's people. Because years ago, when it came to outward appearance and outward adornment, there wasn't much different in what a Christian looked like and what society looked like. It was very similar. Everyone dressed the same. There wasn't so much of a distinction. But then, up until the 20s, when women started cutting their hair in the mid-1900s, when pants on women became commonplace, there just wasn't a big difference in dress between the believer and the sinner. But as the years progressed and society moved away from God, the gulf between the church and the world just kept getting wider and wider and wider. And now we live in a day and age when God still wants us to be modest, but we're going to look so much different from the world because the world has migrated so far away from what used to be modest and what used to be appropriate now that they're so far out in left field that now we do stand out a whole lot more in the day and age we live in as Christians. Whereas years ago, a Christian lady may have felt pretty comfortable in society just because of she dressed and it was easy to find fashions and easy to find clothing because that's the way everybody dressed. But we live in a day and age now when God still calls for his people to be modest. He still calls for us to be holy, but we are going to look a whole lot different from the world because the world is no longer modest. And the world is no longer holy. And it's not that God's word has changed. It's not that his people have changed. It's the world and society that has changed. And it makes it a lot harder then for the, the sinner to come through the door than to grasp all these changes because they're having to make a lot more drastic overhaul changes in their lifestyle because of society having drifted so far away from God's precepts and principles. So we know then from looking at his word that God still wants modesty among his people even if it's no longer popular among society. The Zondervan Pictorial Bible Dictionary says the clothing worn by the Hebrew people of biblical times was graceful, modest and exceedingly significant. They were considered so much a part of those who wore them that they not only told who and what they were but were intended as external symbols of the individual's innermost feelings and deepest desires and his moral urge to represent God aright. In other words, it was just basically saying that even to the Hebrew people of biblical times, their clothing was very significant and very important to them because it symbolized to the world that they were God's people and it represented what was inside. And we can even see this throughout the word of God because we see that there was special dress for religious ceremonies, for the priest if he was going to enter into the Holy of Holies, for festive occasions, for weddings, for a time of mourning, for a time of repentance, sackcloth and ashes, so many different things, that different types of dress that were symbolic and representative of different things going on in their life. So our clothing signifies to God our attitude, lifestyle, and choice of identity. And I gotta hurry. Okay. People everywhere use clothing as an identifier. Now I could start naming off some things, and automatically in your mind you're gonna start getting the picture. Punk rocker. Spiked hair, black leather, spiked collar, cheerleader, football player, prostitute, military, McDonald's employee, Best Buy employee, gang member, a chef, a judge. I could go on and on, but everything I named, you automatically get the picture of what judge he's in a row. Chef, chef's hat and an apron. 
uh, cheerleader. It's got the little skirt and the pom-poms. Everything that I just named, there's a particular uniform or outfit associated with that position. An employee of a company wears a uniform to signify who he or she works for. And as a Christian lady, we should dress modestly to signify who we serve, who we work for, who we serve. A modest heart will always come before modest dress. As Pastor even said last night, it comes from the inside, the inside being clean, and then, you know, make the outside. Make the inside clean first, then the outside. As Christian women, we cannot allow ourselves to dress immodestly and seek to draw attention to our bodies. In doing so, we do ourselves and the men around us a great disservice. We cannot determine our standards by today's society and today's standards. Ephesians 5.26 states this. He, speaking of Jesus, might present it... Did I got that wrong? Okay, I may have that up there wrong. Uh, the scripture I'm reading says, He, Jesus, might present it it meaning the church or the bride, to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And I believe that actually might be verse 27. I think that, okay, that one comes right before it. So verse 27 is basically saying that God's going to present his church to himself as a glorious church. No spot, no wrinkle, pure, undefiled. You can name them different things. Holy, without blemish. Our actions reveal our beliefs. If we truly believe we're the bride of Christ, then we're going to adorn ourselves accordingly. Our outside, again, is going to reflect what's on the inside. And we have to be proactive. Pastor Tim Gill said, people don't automatically drift towards godliness and holiness. It's not just going to fall in your lap. It's not just going to happen. We know that even a law of nature, Murphy's Law, says everything gravitates towards chaos. If we let our lives be ruled by our flesh and desires, we're automatically going to tend towards immodesty, ungodliness, and sin. But it takes determination and decisive action to live holy before God. It's not just going to happen. We have to make a conscious choice to do it. So, what are some guidelines for modesty or holiness in our dress? In the Bible days, and those of you that have been in this church any number of years, have heard Bishop preach on the stola and the robe, and I'll just kind of give you a quick paraphrase of it. In Bible days, women of ill repute, women of bad reputation, would cut a slit in their robe, and it would come all the way up. And they were known as, in those Bible days, the shower of the thigh. They were immodest women with bad reputations. Now, we've already read in Isaiah where women were shamed by their thighs being uncovered. So it's safe to say that any skirt or slit which reveals any part of the thigh is immodest. Skirts and dresses should fall to the knee or below to stay modest. Slits say, now you see it, now you don't. So it's not even appropriate for the slits to give us a chance to see part of the thigh because God considered the uncovering of the thigh nakedness. It's kind of like peekaboo. And it actually is very provocative and enticing to a man. So I'm just giving you a few guidelines. You're just kind of practical every day. We know we should be modest, but what does that mean? How do I go home and fix my wardrobe or fix my closet? Shirts should not be so low cut that they reveal our chest or any part of a woman's parts that are right up here. We must also be conscious that we don't show everything when we're leaning over. For our platform, people that are in the choir or on the platform, we've made a simple rule across the board because usually people, they need to have something in black and white that they can actually go by. So what we've just done is for every person, no shirt should be lower than three fingers below your little bone right here. So your collarbone. So that's just an easy check for platform people. 
you know, whether it be from 13 to whatever age. They can just look in the mirror, collarbone, three of my fingers. Is my shirt lower than that? Okay, it is. I need to put a tank top on. It's as simple as that. It makes it very easy for everyone to have the same thing across the board because someone's more petite is going to have skinnier fingers, someone that's, you know, it just makes it easy for them to check. We know that for ladies, today's fashions are cut in such a way that they're designed to reveal the cleavage of a woman, not cover it up. So almost everything that you buy, you pretty much have to find a tank top or another shirt to wear underneath so we can cover up our chest and be modest. You can also anymore buy, I know uh, CVS have those little camisoles that you can clip to the, your bra straps that just gives you a little triangle for those that are real hot natured and it covers up this part right here without having to wear a whole nother shirt. Another area we should be careful of is our sleeves. Any sleeves that show our underarms, like cap sleeves would, or raising your arms and you see bras or chest area are immodest. And this is certainly an area of concern if you plan to come to church and lift your hands and arms and worship. Now, if you want to come and just sit down and you're not planning on worshiping, then no one's going to see anything. But if you do want to come to church and worship and you want to raise your hands, we don't want to uncover ourselves while we're worshiping. And I know that another trend, even in our society, that started to show up even in the church is women showing a lot of their back, real low-dipped shirts even in the back. So don't let your shirt be too low in the back either. All these things can cause stumbling blocks for our brothers in Christ. We want them to stay sexually pure. And they're trying to stay sexually pure, and we don't need to be one that causes them to stumble. Many girls and ladies I know, before they come to church, they do a praise check. Can you raise your arms without revealing your stomach or any area of your chest? Yep, sounds silly, but it's worth it. Do the praise check. Modesty also dictates that we don't wear our clothes so tight that they reveal every curve or, in some cases, love handles that we got. It can be long sleeve, it can be to the floor, but if it's skin tight, it's not modest. So another good check to do, skirts are too tight if they cup under your bottom. They should go straight down or out. You don't want to see the bloop, bloop, okay? Then it's too tight, okay? Showing too much. These don't encompass all the modesty guidelines, but it kind of should give you a general idea overall of kind of what's acceptable, okay? Now, real quick, I'm, I'm running, I'm rushing. Distinction between the sexes. This is last, see if I can get it in 10 minutes. We know that God created male and female. Adam and Eve, you've heard it said, not Adam and Steve, he created male and female. Equal, yes, but very different, both emotionally and physically. We have very different bodies, and that is by design. God designed it that way so that men and women could reproduce. Deuteronomy 22 and 5. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Now this scripture, unlike what some have said in different times I've heard, this doesn't specifically refer to pants on women. Because in the Bible days, women didn't wear pants. They all wore robes, and the men wore robes, but they were distinctly different. But obviously there was a difference, because this command would not have been given if men and women dressed the same. We can see in Scripture in Genesis 24, 64, And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. For she had said unto the servant, What man is it that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. Now the difference between men and women's clothing, the robes of that day, were significant enough that Rebecca was able to see this man walking across the field 
and recognized that it was a man. So obviously there was enough difference between a man's robe and a woman's robe that when she saw this man walking across the field, knew that's a guy because of the way he was dressed. That's the only way that she would be able to identify that. Going back again to the Zondervan Pictorial Bible, it says, Among the Hebrews, neither sex was permitted by Mosaic law to wear the same form of clothing as was used by the other. A few articles of feminine clothing carried somewhat the name and basic pattern. In other words, there were some basic similarities. Yet there was always sufficient difference in embossing, embroidery, and needlework so that in appearance the line of demarcation or difference between man and woman was readily detected. So the robes of that day, there were some basic similarities, but there was always a clear distinction. This is a man's robe, this is a woman's robe. In the Old Testament, as I've already stated, there were ceremonial laws that were followed, rules for living and keeping order, how to deal with dead bodies, don't touch unclean animals, but there was moral laws. And going into a little more detail, moral laws dealt with things like laws against rape, adultery, incest, and these moral laws held fast even into the New Testament church and beyond. Now the scripture in Deuteronomy 22.5 states that to wear each other's apparel is an abomination unto God, meaning something that God hates. Here's a few other things listed in the scripture as abominations. Human sacrifice, homosexuality, witchcraft, a lying tongue, a false witness, he that soweth discord among brethren. Wearing clothes that pertains to the opposite sex falls into the same category as these other sins. Things that are an abomination to God and part of his moral law do not change. The Bible even states, Revelation 21 and 27, And there shall in no wise enter into it, and this is speaking of heaven, the heavenly city, anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So he's basically saying nothing that's an abomination is going to make its way into heaven. So he's made clear in his word what things are an abomination. So why would God call this particular thing an abomination? Why would the difference between men's clothing and women's clothing be so important to God that he wanted to make it a moral law that we need to have this distinction and this separation? Because men and women represent God's kingdom here on earth. The Bible tells us that man is the image of God. Woman is the image of the bride of Christ. You can see this analogy laid out beautifully and in a physical way in the Song of Solomon. All these different ways that the bride and the bridegroom are in love and they're speaking of each other, but God goes on to say, I'm describing my relationship with the church, with the bride of Christ, okay? We also see in, in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So again, we see that a man's leaving his mother and father. He's joining himself in marriage with a wife. And Jesus is saying, I'm speaking of this concerning my relationship with the church. So man's representative of the image of God. And the bride is representative of the church or the bride of Christ. Okay, do you see that laid out in the scripture? How often, even in our society, in the day we live now, do you see a bride in pants? I'm sure it's happened, but it's very rare. It's not common. It's not common to see a bride. Usually a bride is in a wedding dress. According to scripture, a man should walk, talk, and act like a man. And a woman should sit, talk, and walk like a lady. 
That's why in our society, homosexuality is such an abomination unto God. The Bible says that it is. Because homosexuality totally blurs the line and perverts the intended operation of males and females. What's amazing to me, this even happened while we were gone on our trip. We was coming home and we stopped to eat at a place and we went in to sit down for a little bit. And there was four girls in there. And um, you could see very easily that they were homosexual couples. And they were coupled together. And usually you can view a homosexual couple and usually pick out who is as, acting as the male and who is acting as the female. Typically, like in a lesbian relationship with women, one will progress towards being the male. They'll have short hair. They'll seek to make a very flat chest. They'll have boyish clothes. They'll walk with a swagger. You know, they kind of try to put on the male airs. And then you'll have the other one that'll migrate towards being fully female. A lot of times they'll have longer hair. or They'll have curves. They'll be very feminine. And I think what's amazing to me is that even in sin, mankind cannot get away from God's original design. Usually both aren't totally acting male or totally acting female. You have one that migrates towards each role. But God, in our culture and society, he's telling us, this is my word. This is how I want you to dress. This is how you maintain holiness. In our culture and in our society, America all the way back to when they crossed over on the Mayflower, for generations in our culture, and that's what matters, that's what pertains to us, men wore pants and ladies wore dresses and skirts. Now, what different cultures deem as women and men's clothing may change in different cultures, just like biblical days having men's robes and women's robes. But Deuteronomy 22 covers all cultures and all times. And this scripture is a two-way street. We can learn proper attire for both genders. In the same way that I'm going to show you that women shouldn't wear pants, we're also going to see that men shouldn't wear dresses or skirts. Men's attire has usually always been known to be pants, trousers, or slacks. And women's attire up until the past century consisted of skirts and dresses. Throughout the 18th and 19th century, apparel remained modest for both men and women. Styles changed, different fads came and went, but skirts were what women wore and they stayed long and men wore the pants. In 1890, Charles Gibson, he was a cartoonist, he created the likeness of a beautiful woman that epitomized the feminine ideal. And she remained popular for 20 years and he drew her in many different scenarios, but this became known as the Gibson Girl. And this is what was typified as a beautiful feminine ideal. Very modest, long, beautiful skirt, very womanly. Something else I ran across, and this is, oh, this is so awesome. I, I guess I think it's awesome because it comes from a secular source, not even something that's considered biblical um, or any type of scriptural, but this is, comes from a secular source. This um, article is a university in Missouri, and it's an article written about their history of how women dressed during homecoming, homecoming history in fashion. This first picture was taken in 1928, and it's describing the long dresses and the formal attire and the wool jackets, which were to become pre-runners to what we now know as a letterman's jacket. So these were the ladies in 1928. This next one is what I think is the most awesome one. 1935, I'm going to read it to you and then I'll show you the picture. Although the cardigans and full skirts were part of the formal attire, students wore these garments to classes and football games in the 1930s. Women still predominantly wore skirts and pants were not commonly seen on females until the 1960s. Loose neckties continued to be fashionable. So it's showing you a picture of all the ladies in the 1930s. And what I thought was so awesome is that the secular author is stating that women wore dresses 
and that pants weren't commonplace until the 60s. And I thought that was so awesome and to see all these women beautifully dressed in the, you know, you would look at that and think you're looking at a picture of apostolic women because of their modest dress and their long skirts. You go up to the next year, 1936, another picture. This one's showing a lot of the men dressed very modest, very stylish. The woman that's dressed in the picture, again, very modest. Then we go to 1969, and we see some of the ladies that are in the um, float prior to the football game during homecoming. And again, they're all dressed in beautiful uh, lady suits, modest. And even though this is yet in the 1960s, during these special events, they still felt it was appropriate that they dress modestly, which I think says a lot. And then here we come just two years later to 1971, and we look at another parade, and we see that the skirts are no longer modest anymore, but they're very high. And we know when we got into the 60s and 70s, there was the movement of the hippies and, you know, the trashing of the bras and all that kind of thing. So modesty made a huge change then. So what caused the shift in our society? Why is it now considered acceptable and normal for a woman to wear pants? In that day and age when all that shifting started to happen, it would be the same idea as if now in our society, if suddenly you would walk into a men's department store and find NASCAR dresses hanging in their department or brown leather skirts, we would think that's so odd and strange, you know, to, you know, if you see a guy dressed like a girl, they're known as cross-dressers or drag queens or transvestites. It's not considered a normal, acceptable. It's considered somewhat of an oddity. Not saying that it's not accepted because we live in an anything-goes society, but it's not the norm. You don't walk into a store and find men's dresses. You find women's dresses. So we go back again and look at history. What happened? Again, it happened during the Roaring Twenties. Not only would women at this time make a move towards dressing like men, they also began to emulate celebrities and movie stars and dress more seductively. So it wasn't even just about dressing more like men, it was about making themselves more sensual and sexualized as, to, as well. We know that in World War II, many of the men went off to war and women had to begin working in the factories and fill in for the men. So they were leaving their positions and what they'd always done in the home and entering into jobs that were typically only held by men. And they were filling in at the factories doing men's work and men's jobs, so they began to dress like men as well. It can also be noted during this time that short hair, cigarettes, and swearing became acceptable feminine behavior. So as time passed, women didn't just wear pants in the factory. They began to take them outside the factory and just wear them in their everyday lives. And this was a complete revolt and turnaround of the way society had been for years. And we still see evidence, though, of the male-female distinction even yet today. I'm going to give you a couple examples. First of all, the one that Bishop has used quite often is the public restroom signs. If you can't read and you want to know which restroom to go in, the picture of the figure with the two legs is the male restroom, and the picture of the stick figure with the little triangle dress on is the ladies' restroom, and that's how the bathrooms are differentiated. You also notice today we still yet have a men's bike and a lady's bike. Why? What's the difference? On the lady's bike, the bar in the middle slopes way down. Why? This was done to accommodate a woman's dress while riding because women didn't wear pants, and so they wouldn't have a bar making their dress hike way up. The bar went down so it could accommodate the flow of their dress in front of the seat. And still yet to this day, even though most women in our society wear pants, there's still a men's bike and a women's bike. 
and they're still designed differently. We also look at how clothing is measured, the measurement of men's pants and women's pants. You go to buy a pair of men's pants and it'll say these pants are 32-34. This indicates the waist and the inseam length. However, women's pants are just sized as those are a size 8, those are a size 16, sometimes with the word long or petite attached. Why is this? Because women used to never wear pants. Therefore, the only measurement needed for a woman was the weight. No inseam existed, so no length was needed. So that carried over even whenever women no longer wore skirts and they started creating women's pants. They didn't go back to the measurements that were used for men's pants. They just kept saying size 8, size 12, size 14 because it carries over from the sizing of what, how skirts were measured. You ever hear the phrase, we know who wears the pants in the family? This indicated who had the dominant role in the household. Typically, this role is filled by the male, the one who wore the pants. But this phrase was used sarcastically or in jest when a woman became the dominant one or in charge. So just because it became accepted in our society over the past several generations doesn't make it acceptable for God's people. This past year, I had the opportunity to volunteer in my classroom at school. And usually the kids, they would always, why do you wear dresses all the time? Why do you wear skirts all the time? And I would say, well, I'm a girl, so I wear dresses. Do you see the boys wearing dresses? For a five-year-old, that was a pretty understood and acceptable answer. And they would say, no. And I'd say, right, because dresses aren't for boys, they're for girls, and I'm a girl, so that's why I wear it. So I've already stated that we know, though, that guys that put on girls' clothing is considered very unnatural in our society even yet. Distinct clothing between the sexes maintains the line of separation that God wanted to create between male and female. Even though it's now commonplace for women to wear pants, it's not acceptable in God's eyes. For if we do, then we're putting on apparel that pertains to a man. We can look through the word of God, even in our teaching last month. Men have short hair, women have long hair. Because men are the image of God, and women is the image of the man. God is uncovered, man is covered. Men wear pants, women wear dresses. Men stand tall and proud, shoulders back, they're manly. Women are curvy, common, confident, feminine. There's differences. Doesn't mean we're not equal, it just means that we're different. God created Adam and Eve, man and woman, representatives of Christ and his bride. And God's laws, they're not for our restriction, they're for our protection. And I've tried to drive that home in several different instances where people have come to me with questions. These are God's guidelines that are for our protection. They protect us from unwanted attention. They give us freedom to be fully women. Even people, they view our standards as chains or as bondage. They view it as legalistic or as old traditions. And yes, this can be true if we have the outward symbol without the inward substance. But when we're full of Jesus and we're full of the Holy Ghost and we have the substance on the inside, then it's going to result in a change on the outside. So I want to be holy and I want to be modest, don't you? Amen. All right. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.